Good morning. Hey, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Tom Adams did that. And so, uh, go Tom. Woohoo! Thank you, Tom. Um, we're a real church now. We have arrived. It's amazing. Um, we're starting back after we finish talking about, um, talking about gospel faith in the Old Testament. After talking about leading our children into the gospel. And uh, we spent several weeks on that. Today we're, we're turning our attention back to where we left off, gospel, faith, and the Old Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 11, verse 17 to 22. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 to 22. Um, we live in a, a time in which I don't think it's been more essential um, um, for Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Um, we live in a time and a season in history, um, what the Bible calls from the advent of Jesus until his return, the last days. And as we see the Great Commission advancing and the gospel spreading to all nations, all peoples, we understand that from the words of our Lord himself in Matthew twenty four fourteen, when the gospel has been preached, in all nations, then the end will come. Jesus taught us that in these days, that people will grow colder and colder, and their love will grow colder and colder. And Jesus taught us that if they treated him in such a fashion, they will treat us in like fashion. And I don't know that there's ever been a, a time um, for us that we need encouragement from the Scriptures on how we should live. And so we're going to turn back to these listed in Hebrews chapter 11 and begin to set our mind and our heart on how the gospel is lived out in the Old Testament and, uh, and begin to get some encouragement. My mission as we turn back to Hebrews 11 and gospel faith in the Old Testament is to encourage you to persevere in faithfulness to Father, Son, and Spirit. And hold on to the gospel in spite of what you may perceive to be something that is gigantic. I don't have this morning for you. As we start back over in Hebrews chapter 11, I don't have three easy steps for you to take in order to have some magic happen for you today. I don't offer that to you today. What I do offer is the reality of the providence of God that guides his people and promises that he will work for his glory and our good, come what may. He will never sacrifice his glory for my good, and he will never sacrifice my good for his glory. Father is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we see in Scripture, that God is seeking His great name to be glorified among all nations and the good of His people, and neither one is ever, ever sacrificed. So, I offer you not a pragmatic solution to today's challenges, but I do offer you a glimpse at the working of the King of the universe in order that you, and I may be encouraged to run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, the author 
and founder and perfecter of our faith. This faith that we see lived out in Hebrews chapter 11, faith that the scriptures speak of, is not dependent upon the recipient. Nor does the recipient, you and I, create faith. It's not something we conjure up and hold our nose the right way or do enough good to get. Rather, in the providence of God, faith is given, it is sustained, and it is enacted to accomplish divine ends so that our days can be filled with transcendent purpose and complete joy. Used to read in some of the old guys, they talked about providence. Even some of our founding fathers, who those who were Christians, spoke about the work of providence in guiding the work of history. This idea that God is continually, this scriptural reality that God is continually working and involved with all created things in such a way that He keeps them maintaining the properties that they were created with cooperating with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to act as they do, and He directs them to fulfill His purposes. God is working providentially in history and you and I to accomplish divine ends, and that is what gives you and I any sense of transcendent joy and purpose to our life. There is no joy or purpose found in service simply for service's sake here on this globe. You can't fulfill your soul by doing work here. Your soul is fulfilled recognizing that whatever you do here is for greater glory, greater purposes far beyond this earth. And so the writer of Hebrews in writing to encourage these struggling Hebrew Christians under severe persecution, he wrote in order to exhort them. Not to conjure up some fake optimism that would give some type of solace to their tortured soul. Nor did he write this letter to tell them to buck up and get it done. The writer of Hebrews wrote to a haggard people who have had their property plundered. Some have been thrown into prison because they believed the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage them that Jesus is better than life and to turn back from following Jesus is catastrophic even if it leads to their death because by turning back they communicated something to the unbelieving eye that wondered about what they were living for the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage the Christians to persevere in following Jesus as their great God and high priest. And he gives them examples of fallen men and women who've been known for their flaws and their obedience to the Lord. So it's vital to understand Hebrews chapter 11 and the faithful mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the full light of Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. So let's take a look at that very quickly. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. It's easy to get caught up in chapter 11 and miss the fact that the emphasis is not necessarily on the saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, but the one in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that they are imitating. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what witnesses? Our dead relatives? No. Often this passage is quoted to justify for someone's 
feeling better that their dead relative is watching their life. That is not what this says. Okay? Hear that. These witnesses are witnessing to the reality of Jesus and the gospel. This great cloud of witnesses are those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and all those like them who have believed the gospel. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, witnesses to this gospel reality, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, comma, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's important to make some observations. Number one, these faithful witnesses to the saving power of the gospel are such because they trusted in Jesus. It's not because they were good people who did good work and therefore imitate their moral example. These are men and women and an entire community of people who believe the gospel and are looking to Jesus as the standard and example by which they are to live. So these faithful witnesses are witnesses to the saving power of the gospel because they've trusted in Jesus. Now, if this is the first time you set in on gospel faith in the Old Testament, go back and listen online to the very beginning. It's vital for you to understand the gospel did not come into creation in the New Testament. The gospel is the eternal reality of Father, Son, and Spirit. And God's intention to save through the death of His Son revels for the sake of His great name. It's the eternal reality that stands above creation. So gospel is preached in Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. And it's vital to understand these witnesses to this gospel reality are living by the standard of Jesus. And they're witnesses to the saving power of the gospel. So in like manner that they were saved, we are saved because of Christ. Number two, these faithful remind us that we must throw aside all things that weigh us down and run toward Jesus, imitating Jesus. We understand there are things that will weigh us down. And we will be weighed down at times. It's normal. We're fallen creatures, right? But we must, by God's grace, repent and run after Jesus. A dominant characteristic of the life of Christians is that of repentance. None of us in this room have arrived, have we? None of us in this room have arrived. We are still fallen creatures, saved by grace, and we are to throw aside, as they had to do, everything that weighs us down and keeps us from fulfilling the mission. And they remind us of that necessity to repent. Number three, these faithful remind us that Jesus saves flawed people who don't see the big picture clearly in focus. They just obey as best they can what is in front of them. And Father uses those flawed people for His glory and for their great joy. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. So I'm going to try to hold off. Remember, Jesus didn't save you because you were good to make you better. Jesus saved you because you were dead. And He had mercy on you to pluck you up from the torrent of destruction caused by the fall. And He set you on the solid ground of the gospel in love. And He says, greater things than these you will do because He's gone to the Father and sent the Spirit to dwell in you. 
It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Jesus saves flawed people who don't see the big picture in focus. And the good news is, Jesus doesn't say to you today, know the future clearly. He saved you because he loved you, not by works you did, but because he's good. And he intends to take a flawed people and make his name great with them. So welcome to the flawed club. There is no mandate today that you be perfect. There is the mandate to obey. We're going to say more about that in just a minute, so hang tight with me. Number four, these faithful remind us that we're to imitate who they were imitating, namely Jesus. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. I'm going to take time to read it all. But you go and take a look at this passage. That that is a standard that we are to look to. Let us look to Jesus. One who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took the form of a servant. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's what we imitate. We imitate Christ. He's the standard. He's the goal. We look to Him. Don't look to me. Don't look to your neighbor. Don't look to your small group. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Number five. These faithful remind us that Father will transform and give purpose to anyone who will believe, trust, and obey. When you take a look at some of these people listed in Hebrews chapter 11, again, they're not known because they were perfect, but because God saved them, they trusted, they believed, and they sought to obey, and they failed in the process, and Father loved them anyway because of His great mercy. And so the good news that we can preach to Roman Floyd County and the nations is that it doesn't matter who you are. If you will come to Jesus, if you will believe this gospel message, repent of your sin, He will transform you. He will change who you are. He will give you a new heart. And your life can have eternal significance and purpose and meaning far beyond what you could ever imagine. Number six. These faithful remind us that this room is full of people whose lives are full of eternal significance. In the gospel. You were made to glory in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your life is bigger than your current challenge or struggle or success. You were made for a gospel purpose. I've been spending time counseling with people over the past few weeks. People who want to walk away and give up and quit on gospel things. And you need to understand that you and I were made to glory in Father, Son, and Spirit. And your life is bigger than the current challenge, struggle, or success that is in front of you. There is more in play than what you see with your eyes right now. You were made for a transcendent gospel purpose. Jerry Bridges and a great work called Trusting God that the Lord in His providence sent across my path when I was in college at Shorter. Used the illustration of a large tapestry that is ornate to illustrate the life of a Christian. The front of the tapestry is full of detail and brilliant design. 
And that is the redeemed life completed in Christ. But the back of the tapestry is confusing and jumbled, lacking any sort of obvious order. And that's the process of making us like Christ. Although the daily existence of following the Lord may seem confusing, and you can't see the picture clearly, having no sense of reality in front of you of what Father is doing, what we do know from Scripture is He's weaving your existence together for a grand gospel purpose far beyond what you can imagine right now for eternal gospel purposes. Does that make sense? So often what's right in front of us seems confusing and it doesn't make sense and things don't work out the way we think they should work out. We're not quite sure what the end is going to be. The good news of Scripture is that that has not left Father's attention. What doesn't make sense to us makes perfect sense to Him because He's working in all of that for an end bigger than what's in front of our eyes at the moment. We're going to look at these examples here in Hebrews 11 in just a moment. But the good news of that work is that He's weaving together your life in a brilliant and ornate fashion for His glory and for your good even if you don't fully get it. So don't be discouraged with the apparent setbacks and inability to see the end just yet. Be encouraged, repent of sin, obey in the moment, and He will work for His glory and for your good. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, what in the world are we to do with that? Does that mean we're supposed to go sacrifice our children? Does that mean we're supposed to prophetically, with foresight, speak? Divine words over our children? Are we supposed to pull a trickery and trick somebody into doing something different so we can get ahead of them? Are we supposed to see the future and give instructions about our own dead bones? What what are we supposed to do with this? Let's take a look at how four flawed men obeyed and were counted faithful and how father worked for his glory and for their good abraham you go back and look at genesis 22 1 to 10 abraham was given a promise before this passage that through him he would bless the nations genesis 12 1 to 3 the great commission's first installment in you shall all the nations be blessed He promised to give him a son. Well, Abraham, being like a flawed creature, decides he has a role in that. And since his wife can't have children, he'd just go get her servant because she offered her servant to him and they could make it happen on their own. 
Right? Makes sense, right? Because obviously it's up to Abraham to solve the problem, right? Wrong. The Lord promised him a son with Sarah. He took it into his own hands. He messed it up. And did God throw Abraham away and say, I'm Abraham? Gosh. Fool. Is that what the Lord did to him? No. The Lord in the fullness of time gave him Isaac. In a supernatural work, he couldn't make happen. This is cool. I got something to hit now. This is amazing. This feels so good. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Abraham is given the child that God promised him. And then the Lord says, Abraham, go bleed your son. Give him to me. You read this passage and you read the commentary on it and the New Testament. We learn that Abraham was offering up Isaac, the promised son, because he believed that father could raise the dead. Abraham in faith served as a type of what was to come in father sending son so that father could kill son for Abraham's sake and raise him from the dead. Abraham and faith served us in pointing us to the reality of the gospel. But did Abraham know the full magnitude of what was happening around him in redemptive history? The text doesn't tell us, does it? Did Abraham fully, clearly see that? Now, I see that what is happening here is there's a foreshadowing of the gospel. And I will gladly bleed my son so that those people may see. He's just, he's the promised kid of... I've tried to do it myself. I've tried to fix it. And now you've given me a son. And now you're telling me to bleed him. You've been faithful to me. So somehow, some way, you're a promise-keeping God. I will bleed him, but you have to raise him from the dead. He didn't see the full magnitude of what was happening in front of him. But what we do know is that Abraham was led to a place by father that he was compelled to obey father. As Father was working something better for him and for us. Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40. Here's some good news for you. You may not know the full magnitude of what's swirling around you and God's purposes for your day today, but He has not dropped the ball. He has not missed out on the detail. It may not make sense to you, but He's working for His glory and for your good. So take courage. It's not that Abraham is a super saint who deserves some status in the kingdom greater than you or I. He was a flawed individual who failed miserably, and in God's grace he saved him anyway because God loved him. And though he couldn't see the future, he obeyed what was in front of him. He always sought to repent of his sin. And Father was glorified in Abraham, and Abraham found his great joy. In the Lord. What about Isaac? Isaac, the promised son. Genesis 27, 1-45. We read about Isaac speaking prophetic blessing on his children. As an instrument of father's good and sovereign decision making. Let me read you a passage. Paul's commentary on Isaac. Romans 9, 10-11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and, do, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Go read that passage in Genesis 27. Did Isaac know that there was a proclamation going out to the whole world about the divine prerogative of Father and redeeming his fallen world and bringing justice to the world in order to show the magnitude and grandeur of who Father, Son, and Spirit is to all creation so that Father, Son, and Spirit would be all in all? Did Isaac know that? I don't think so. I'm not sure Isaac had in view the full magnitude of the grand prerogative of God to save who he wanted to. He just obeyed what was in front of him. And Paul comments on this, that there was a work going on to show the divine prerogative of God to have mercy on some of fallen humanity because He is merciful. And though that may trip some people up, God was speaking something through the obedience of Isaac that was deeper and longer and more amazing than he could ever imagine. Even in all of Isaac's failures and successes, there was a deeper proclamation taking place. Isaac probably did not get the magnitude of what he was involved in. But what Isaac did know is that he was brought to this place, even through the trickery of the hands of his son Jacob, so that Isaac would obey and trust Father was working something better for him and for us. Jacob, Genesis 48. Jacob blessed his sons as he bowed on his staff in worship. You read that passage? By the way, it's just a side note. Genesis is loaded with gospel reality. If you've not sat down and read Genesis and worked your way meticulously through Genesis, start today. That's a sermon in itself. But Jacob blessed his sons as he bowed on his staff in worship before he died. And he spoke prophetically as Isaac did, about the coming of one from whose hand the scepter would not depart. Who do you think he was looking forward to? Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Jacob spoke of the coming Messiah who would rule all of Israel. And he would rule all of Israel well. That is, all those who are of the faith of Abraham. Did Jacob know the grandeur of the kingdom that he spoke of? Probably not. What Jacob did know was that he was worshiping his deliverer and king in trust that father had a plan for his boys and preserving them through the famine by the hand of his supposed lost son Joseph that the Lord had sent to Egypt to prepare a place of salvation for them. Joseph. Maybe the greatest statement in the Bible of the divine providence of God and His good purposes over His people, even when it hurts. Genesis 37 to 50. You know the story? Joseph, in his youthful folly, tells his older brothers of his dream, of which his brothers would one day bow down to him. And if you were an older brother, you'd have threw him in the pit too. I would have never thrown Joseph in the pit. He was speaking from the Lord. No, you would have. I'm not bowing down to you, little brother. So, yeah, you're going to bow down to me. No, you're not. We're going to throw you in the pit. Wonderful. Great. 
And then we're going to sell you to some traders and then tell dad that you were mauled in the wilderness. Try that one on for size, little brother. We'll see if we bow down to you. And then the traders sell him into slavery in Egypt. Then he gets a job serving in the household of some official. The official's wife tries to pull hanky-panky with him. He gets put in prison. Next thing you know, he's in prison. He's serving the Lord's purposes. And next thing you know, he's a, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh brings him in. He's second in command, famine in the land. And lo and behold, there's my brothers bowing down before me. And you read the commentary on that. In the Psalms, and it's absolutely glorious, because the Bible tells us the Lord sent Joseph. Now that's insane. That's, that's the commentary of the Psalms, that the Lord sent Joseph. Not his brothers, not the Ishmaelite traitors, not the jailer, not Pharaoh. God sent Joseph. Was Joseph fully aware of what was going on in redemptive history? Probably not. What Joseph did know was that father was faithful and he wasted no hurt and no event. And the Lord was faithful and completely able to rescue his people through means larger than life itself. Some observations for you. Number one, if you have believed the gospel, father is at work in your life in ways you can't even begin to imagine for supreme good in spite of what you perceive and know. Listen, man, this is a glorious reality that the gospel purchases for us. Is that even though we don't know, Father is working for our good and for His glory, even if it hurts. This is, this is one thing that the American preaching of Christianity misses horribly. God doesn't save you to make much of you. He saves you to make much of Himself. And even when it hurts, even if you lose your life, it is for His glory and for your great good. For something far beyond you. You weren't made for you. You were made for Him and His purposes. And so our great challenge is getting over ourselves and finding our significance in the grand story of the gospel in redemptive history so that even if my life fails at 39, he's good. And he's working in me deeper than I can ever imagine. Dude, that helps me get up tomorrow morning. That helps me get up on Tuesday morning. And it will you too, recognizing that Father is working in you in deep and unfathomable ways. And he doesn't say, be a super saint. He doesn't say, be like Joseph. He says, be like Jesus. And here's a flawed example of a person who simply obeyed, imitating the king, and God did great things in his life. None of us are exempt from that. Isn't that cool to know? There's nobody in this room that that can't be their existence. Because you were made for transcendent reality. William Cowper one of my favorite uh, hymn writers, who's a contemporary of William Wilberforce and wrote several hymns about the work that God did in the life of William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade. Spent his entire life dealing with depression 
And he didn't have any help medically. Cowper spent deep, dark bouts of depression. He spent days and weeks and months in deep, hard places. He got in his carriage to drive himself off into the Thames River and commit suicide on a foggy evening. He got lost in London in the fog and gave up, and his horse walked him back to his house. He got out of his carriage, he went in, and he penned the words to this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. He is always working for His glory and your good. Even when you fail, He didn't fail, and He didn't get surprised by your failure. Only in the grand meta-narrative of the gospel do we find the earth's answer for difficulty and failure. And that is God is redeeming and working even in failure and difficulty to achieve grand, sovereign, and good purposes for those people. So that as Christians, we have to fear not those things. Number two, the saints mentioned in scripture are not our role models. Rather, they are fellow aliens and strangers in this world who've sought to imitate Jesus and have failed because they were flawed and they've been sustained anyway because of Father's grace and the glory of Father at stake in their salvation. You ever failed? You're not the last. You're not the first. You won't be the last. And the glorious reality for us is They were imitating Jesus. They're not our role models. Jesus is. But we find great encouragement to stay the course. These struggling Hebrew Christians who received this letter, who had had their property plundered, had been tossed into prison, and some had been killed, could look and see as we are trying to imitate Jesus. Our forefathers sought to imitate Jesus. Some of them died. Some were delivered. But in any case, we can set our face on Christ and imitate Him so that if we die, He can raise us up. And I want to say to you that if you fail doing God's work, it is not failure. It is the glorious grace of God to train you to be more like the King. Number three, we imitate these saints only to the extent they imitate Father, Son, and Spirit. And we learn from their failures what not to do. You know, some great examples. You go back and read in these passages in Genesis, not what not to do. It's a pretty good list of don't do that. Some good wisdom there. Number four, we learn that the success of the mission of God is not dependent on His saints. Isn't that good news? The completion of the Great Commission is not dependent on you or I. Rather, we learn that the success of the mission is a foregone conclusion and that our participation is grace and kindness and it's a great journey in spite of joy and difficulty. Listen, man, this is... you. The Great Commission is going to happen locally and globally. God is going to reach all that He intends to reach in Roman Floyd County. And it's not dependent on whether or not we... we, we do anything if we don't obey he'll get it done through somebody else and they will find the great joy in the wonderful journey of following and obeying but he's going to get his work done 
and we discover that because we have a mission that can't fail, we can go, we can try, we can work, and enjoy the grace, kindness, and goodness of our God in a great journey of joy in spite of the difficulty that it brings. It's this kind of stuff that helps us be fearless and go after the advance of the gospel regardless. Are you not glad that the future of our nation and advance of the gospel is not dependent on your vote in November? Are you not glad that Jesus didn't leave the advancement of righteousness and truth up to you and I? We very simply get to participate as His servants, speaking truth, telling the story of the gospel, reaping the fruit and the harvest, making disciples, planting churches, doing great work among the nations. Number five, we learn that Father does not operate by the fallen means of this present world. Rather, Father operates by His chosen ends and means. And often, our behavior and obedience to that will baffle those around us. You ever pay attention to the things Jesus said to do? They're counterintuitive to a fallen mind, aren't they? Scriptures teach us to be liberal givers of resources rather than hoarders of resources. Don't they? Do they not? They do. I mean, Jesus tells the story of this dude who built bigger barns because he had great crops. He built bigger barns so he could store them all up. And he said, I have all this stuff. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus said, good job. Great financial planning. No, Jesus said, that's a fool. Because tonight his life is required of him. I don't think Jesus told us to be stupid. But he certainly told us to be liberal givers of his resources to his mission. And when people live life like that, it's easy to look at them and go, God, man, they're crazy, man. What they, what's wrong with these people? Oh, they've just been taken with the gospel, smitten with the good news, the meta-narrative of God's redemptive work in history, recognizing I own nothing, it's all his, so let me just let him have it. Imagine what the American church would look like if every Christian gave as though they really didn't own anything. Used resources as though they really weren't theirs. Invested resources as though they were God's. You, you see what I'm saying? When we, when we operate by those means that God has given us to operate by, people will not get it, but it is a great proclamation of the glory of the gospel. And here's the deal. God in His providence uses that in unfathomable ways. People willing to die for the gospel rather than scatter, rather than people willing to die for the gospel, rather than being people who scatter to preserve their own lives. People willing to submit to cruel authority over them so that they may be proclaimers of the gospel to that authority that God had placed over them. None of the stuff in Scripture that these people did to obey makes a lick of sense to a fallen mind. But they're God's ends and means. And we have examples. Jesus died to save. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. 
Yet little children loved to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. No one was half so kind and compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reedy would not break. His whole life was love. But there are occasions he demanded the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. I mean, Jesus lived in such a fashion that it was totally counter to everything. He baffled people and he says, come and imitate me. Give your life up. You save it. Give everything away. You store up treasure in heaven. And those are God's means and His ends. And when we imitate Jesus, we end up living lives like these people in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's a life well lived. Number six, we learn that the life of faith is one that looks forward to the success of the mission and lives life now based on the mission's success, not our personal success. It's not about my personal success. It's about the success of the mission And that's a life worth living. Number seven, and finally, we learn that the life of faith is not individual only, but rather the life of faith is one that's linked to each other in the gospel, and together we're made holy. I think it's important to note, and we're going to hit this in a few weeks when we get here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think this is a huge statement. And we're going to deal with this in a few weeks. But we understand that the life we live by faith is not an individual life. It is a life linked together with those in the covenant of the gospel. Doing it together for the sake of the king. Together. Interdependent on one another living lives that are radical by faith, following the example of Jesus. And in so doing, we encourage one another, as the writer of Hebrews says, every day, as long as it's called today, so we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you're living that life separated from others, it's not Christian. But when we live a life of faithfulness together, there is great joy There's great purpose and great things are achieved in the kingdom. So finally, be encouraged. Repent of sin. Obey in the moment. And he will work for his glory and for his good. It's a little piece of... Just take it and run with it. You want... To be obedient 20 years from now and be right squarely where you need to be 20 years from now, obey right now. Obey right now. Obey right now. You know, the good news is, you don't have to see the future clearly. You don't need to know the end fully. You don't need to know tomorrow perfectly. What you need to do is obey right now. Obey now. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what these saints did. They obeyed right then. They obeyed right then. They were following Jesus. What is the Lord saying? What is He speaking? What is He telling me to do? He's telling me to cut my kid's throat? Oh my gosh, how am I supposed to be able to do this? Father, you're faithful. You're righteous. You're good. You're perfect. You do. He's the promised kid. You've got to raise the dead. Okay, I'll obey. Help me, Lord. Help me. Does that make sense? Obey right now. You obey now, you obey today, you obey moment by moment by moment. 
And we're living in the providential flow of God, accomplishing eternal great things. And guys, all of us in this room were made for that. So be encouraged today as we look to the rest of this chapter and we look at examples of gospel faith in the Old Testament to apply today. Be encouraged. Father is at work in you. He has not left you. Don't quit. Give up. Finish the race. Let's imitate Jesus. And in so doing, there will be great reward and great joy for us, even in the middle of difficulty. Okay? Let me pray for you, and then let's make much of him in song. Father, um, I thank you for these examples in the text of people who were just obedient. And so, Father, it's challenging to me because it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. I can't see the future. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know you are faithful. You are perfect. You do all things well. You have not left me. You have not forgotten me. You hold me in the palm of your hand. You call your people by name and you lose none of them. So Father, I ask that you would give us encouragement to stay the course. To trust you. To follow your example. And live by faith the gracious faith that you've granted that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, this morning I have no doubt that tons of challenges and things walked in the room. I have those things. We all have those things. And I pray, Father, that by the Spirit that you would lead us into faithful obedience. Holy Spirit, I pray that there will not be a single one of yours who fails to hear the whisper of your call and clear instruction on what to do right now and as they pass through the day. I pray, Father, against the effects of the evil one who would seek to make us dull through sin and not repenting and make us dull to your voice. I pray that you would bring about repentance and righteousness and clear the air of our soul so we can see and hear clearly what to do right now. So, Father, I pray that all across your people this morning here that you would help us to repent and to turn to you for instruction. Holy Spirit, I pray that the evil one would have no effect. pray that you would guide us into the truth and lead us into moment-by-moment obedience. Be our counselor. You are the one who walks along beside and our guide. So be that now, please. I pray, Father, where there were, there were maybe some who walked in and were ready to just give up, tired, weary of staying the course. I pray that you would give them strong courage to finish the race, to not give in, to trust you even though it doesn't make sense, to walk in what you've said in front of them and to do it with courage and strength and joy. I pray, Father, that you would work in the advance of the gospel in our town. It does not make sense. It is strange. It is weird. But I pray, Father, that you would advance the good news of Jesus and that this would become a place of another great awakening. May you save the lost. Cause your people to repent. Father, even in this moment, I ask that you would move us to respond to you in song. You made us to make much of you. And you gave a song as a tool to do that. I pray that you would help us to do that well now. 
Lord, I pray you remove any distraction that keeps us from that. We pray this in Jesus' name.